Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talked to a new New Dealer from New Hampshire, New Hampshire Senator Rebecca Perkins Quoka. She was elected to the New Hampshire State Senate in 2020 and previously served two terms on the Portsmouth City Council. Her election to the New Hampshire Senate broke barriers as she's the first LGBTQ woman to serve in the legislature. Senator Rebecca Perkins Quoka, welcome to an honorable profession. Thank you, Ryan. I am thrilled to be here with you. There's so much to talk about. There's a lot going on in New Hampshire. But I want to start because it's summertime, and one of the things I associate with summer is Dairy Queen. And I know you grew up working in your family's Dairy Queen, and I wondered if you could tell us some stories of what that was like and how it's informed your approach to supporting small businesses in your state. Yeah, definitely. I always like talking about Dairy Queen since I spent so much time there. Um, You know, it actually was a pretty big influence on, I would say, ending up involved in politics. And, you know, from an early age, I think I just sort of came to understand in a very personal way that, you know, life wasn't the same for, for each of us. And though I was lucky enough to be born into a family that you know, didn't have a lot of means. We were we were making do owning a business. Some of my employees and friends who were of a similar age, you know, might have had very different circumstances. They might have had absent parents or parents with a substance use disorder or just sort of a different circumstance that was going to make life different for them. And so I think, you know, just being exposed to that inherent sort of understanding that we didn't all start on the same starting line really has sort of informed a lot of what I've gone through as I've gone through my life and sort of making sure that people understand that we all want to work hard and we all want to do our best, but we don't all get to start in the same place. And certainly, you know, businesses, small restaurants have been deeply affected by COVID. What have you been doing over the last 16 months to try to support, you know, the kinds of businesses that you grew up in? Well, we've been doing that in big and small ways. You know, we we certainly uh, are aware as a family of what of what they're going through as owners and also what their employees are going through in terms of uncertainty. But so we've you know we've tried to support them by being customers and you know and friends. But I've also spent a lot of time with uh, some of the business owners in our community and here in the seacoast of New Hampshire, we have a really lovely sort of small business community and, and a lot of those owners were already friends, but even in cases where they weren't, I've spent a lot of time reaching out to business owners in my district and, you know, primarily listening. I wanted to understand how, what the federal and state aid programs that rolled out had helped. I wanted to 
understand where there were gaps. And then as a senator who won my election in November, I actually brought legislation to address what I saw as the biggest gap there, which was that businesses formed after May 26, 2019 in our state had actually not had access really to any program due to how new they were and the fact that they didn't have 2019 full financial records to, to sort of verify loss. And so some of our very newest businesses, which are the businesses which create the most jobs, you know, they are showing the most recent niches in our economy and often are opening at a time that's later than they wanted to in the first place, were being left out of the aid programs that our state was offering. And so I brought a bill to make sure that any future federal discretionary funds, however they were allocated by our state, would, would definitely include this group of newer businesses. Yeah, absolutely. You saw this with the, the independent contractors and you saw it with the sole proprietorships really sort of fell through the cracks and it was it was difficult to align you know these big federal programs with so many different individual needs but i i agree supporting those those brand new businesses who are just opening up and trying to make it work in an, in an in an already it's already difficult to start a business and to to start one certainly in the middle of a pandemic and economic crisis we needed to help them as much as we could yeah it i mean i was so struck by in interviewing them again and again, how much it was their will to survive, you know, that kept their business alive. And so many of them just being, being a business owner and starting their business in the first place had been such a major undertaking. If they were open, they felt like they had to start all over, whether that's because of new business models or figuring out new aid or getting outdoor seating permits or whatever it was that, you know, sort of was their challenge coming into the pandemic. But in addition to that, you know, businesses that just happened to open a little later still had invested, you know, tens or potentially more thousands of dollars in their business, had been through permitting, you know, had been through financing. And so all of them are creative and hardworking and, you know, they deserve a helping hand from those of us that can do it. One of the things on your very impressive resume, you grew up in in New Hampshire, went to Dartmouth for undergrad, Cornell for law school. You were in the Peace Corps and you did small business development in West Africa. And I'm wondering if any of the skills or lessons you learned from that experience uh, helped support the small businesses back back in your home state. Yeah, probably a little bit. I mean, we all <laughs> draw things from our various experiences, you know. But yeah, I was, I was fortunate enough to serve in West Africa for almost two and a half years. And, um, and it's, a very different place on this earth than seacoast New Hampshire, but it, it was a wonderful experience. I mean, you, you know, you're completely immersed in a community as a Peace Corps volunteer. I lived my life in three different languages. One of them was uh, the local language, which was Wolof and primarily found myself working with women and high schoolers who, you know, didn't necessarily have a lot of formal options in the economy, you know, getting a salaried job or even an hourly job in, in sort of unbanked economies is a, is a pretty big challenge. So the question was sort of how to make something virtually out of nothing in, in almost all other cases. And so whether that was as a high schooler, you know, being a student of a vocation such as sewing or metalworking or something that, you know, they could sort of start a business in or for women, Similarly, um, was there something they could cook? Was there something they could sell that would 
generate some cash flow to support their family. And so it was, it was micro entrepreneurism. And I think, you know, we see examples of that in the way you start a business in America. There are obviously differences and similarities. You know, I think, for example, there's not as much permitting in West Africa. There's not as much financing in West Africa, but the principles remain the same. You know, I mean, what's working, what's not working, how do you get the word out to the people that need your service, you know, and, and how can you sort of use the money that comes in, in the smartest way. And and that was certainly a question I think a lot of our businesses were asking during the pandemic, you know, okay, if I have this limited resource, do I spend it on payroll? Do I spend it on equipment? Do I spend it on upgrades while we're closed? You know, do I hold on to it? Do I pay myself? You know, and I think they were asking a lot of those questions due to sort of extreme circumstances, but they're, they're questions that business owners face all the time, you know, certainly, certainly some comparisons, although, uh, you know, definitely some differences too. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about your decision to return to New Hampshire and then where you think this commitment to public service that you so uh, evidently have comes from and and what what that path has been like for you? Yeah, I think there's a lot of questions in there, but but for me, I, I always wanted to come back and I've always felt fortunate that I grew up in a place that I wanted to come back to. You know, I think it, it has struck me as as I've grown up and moved around <laughs> around the world, I guess, really, um, that, you know, figuring out sort of like where to build life is, is complex these days and not always obvious. So I, I've always felt lucky to have that in New Hampshire and, and I've always felt sort of a deep commitment to my state. And I think part of the sense of duty is just a recognition that when I was growing up, you know, we, we weren't able to do everything on our own. I mean, I grew up as part of a big Italian family, whether they helped my mom with childcare or helped on the weekends with our small business or whatever it was, you know, there were always people present when I went to college. I certainly did that with the help of a bunch of scholarship funds. Often when I had questions or challenges, you know, I, I had mentors or other folks involved in my life to just sort of help me through it. And so I think just feeling that connection to community, I just feel a conviction that it's our responsibility, you know, to be a part of our society. And whether you do that for a year as a member of a planning board or, you know, as a member of a school board or you do it for multiple years and you run campaigns, you know, however you do it, I think it's just really important to recognize that, you know, our democracy doesn't function on its own. It takes people to run it and people to be involved in it. And I think, um, you know, making sure that that's a part of your life and that you're, you're also modeling that for your children, I think is just, is really important. So it's been wonderful to be back in New Hampshire. There's so many young people our age and young parents and young working folks that, you know, we really feel like we've been able to build a fairly genuine community here. And so um, I wouldn't go anywhere else. (laughs) I love it. Can I actually just dive into that a little bit? Because one of the things that we've seen in this pandemic is folks, folks like you and me who grew up in smaller towns and maybe left to go to college or grad school went to urban cities and and post pandemic are reconsidering life and looking at maybe returning to their hometowns or, or similar small towns. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to, 
to go and come back and engage your community in this new way, getting elected to city council and then eventually to the state Senate? Yeah, I think it's really rewarding. And I can understand how it's hard to know whether that's the right decision for someone or not. But in my case, you know, you can be in New York and you can be in D.C. and there are other things you can impact there. And I know when I came home from D.C. to New Hampshire, you know, there were opportunities I was looking at in both places. But ultimately, you know, your home state needs you and it needs the the new ideas you've acquired from being somewhere else and needs you to be part of the next generation and, and help shape what's going on back home and you know it's it's unquestionably been my experience that it makes a difference for this generation to to be here and maybe that's only true in New Hampshire but I I somehow doubt that because we're just you know we're native to a new economy we're native to a sharing economy we're native to a digital economy we're native to a work from home economy you know there are things that we understand about how the world is changing that are intuitive to us and and help us as policymakers to think long-term about how that might further evolve. That's, that's part of the mix that will help make good policy for all of our places going forward. And I think without us there, um, (laughs) we're leaving decisions that will affect us the most up to other people. You know, we, we are going to be a part of our states and our communities the longest, you know, we will, we will be here for many, many more years and, and so shaping how that future unfolds, I just think is super important. And so I just feel like being home, you know, you have a better ability to to make that impact. Maybe it's not in a huge city or maybe it's not on a really grand scale, but but you're still making that impact and it's still important. And, and every piece of our country is important, as we've learned from recent elections, you know, to make sure that we're just sort of, seeing abrasive best practices and thinking ahead because we don't want to see any of these places kind of wither or be lost. And I think without recognizing that we need to be here to help with that, you know, we just can't be a part of that solution. You obviously play a critical role in bringing a fresh voice to, to your state. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that you were the first LGBTQ senator in your state's history. Can you talk about how you how you try to bring a perspective and and values to the state Senate and to your state in general? Sure. <laughs> uh, I think it's a, another big question, but yeah, and I always like to acknowledge, you know, as far as I know, I'm the first openly LGBTQ woman to serve in our state Senate because you just, you know, there may have been predecessors of mine that were just not out. But yeah, I think that my experience has always been that I'm most comfortable communicating from a position of, of respect, but strength, you know, and I think acknowledging the contributions of everyone who's come before us is always an important part of communicating, but, but yet, you know, we do have a lot to add as young people, you know, and our generation is one of the most civic generations I think there has been in a long time. We are extremely well informed. We're extremely engaged and, you know, we want to make a difference. And so bringing that voice to the table, in my opinion, is a no-brainer. I mean, it's it's an addition and, and it helps our country. So 
I feel confident in that and I feel sure that it's something we should be doing. And so then, you know, I think it becomes a question of like making sure you own that, you know, making sure that you are informed on the topics you're going to talk about, that you do your research, that you have a team around you. And (laughs) believe me, your team is more important than you could ever imagine, but um, you're you're not ever doing this alone making sure that your team around you is there to help you iron out details, you know, figure out inaccuracies, reword something, bounce something off of them, you know, make sure that you kind of have that, that environment where, you know, you can sort of enable yourself to, to be constantly communicating in a very like accurate and, and professional manner, you know, and, and I think you also have to engage people who have different strengths than you, right? I mean, I'm not, uh, <laughs> I'm not a natural sort of marketer. I, I mean to post things on social media much more often than I do. And so part of being a senator has been, you know, I, I got an intern because it's, I thought that that would help me do my job better. It would help me put my voice out there better. And that wasn't something that senators did previously. But, you know, I had this great, member of my campaign team that I wanted to keep working with and it's been a great arrangement so I think you just have to kind of do what works for you you know acknowledging that at 38 years old I'm I'm not retired you know I'm general counsel of a renewable energy company I have a young daughter I'm pregnant like (laughs) there's a lot going on in my life that is going to take away from my ability to necessarily like communicate and be in the debate unless I can sort of figure out a way to to use the tools around me to do that and I think you you know you do that you just you kind of have to evolve into it but but it's a big important part of the job and I think you kind of have to just you know set yourself up so that you can do it effectively and one of the places where you've been vocal and a real leader is talking about issues around women's health care and reproductive rights and uh this is we're obviously in a uh changing moment in our in our history with uh, potential changes coming from the Supreme Court in this area, what are the challenges that you see both in New Hampshire and nationally to the continued safeguarding of, of both uh, reproductive rights and maternal health care? And how do, you, how do you bring your voice to that debate? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so important and so fundamental to, I think, just equality of the genders, you know, and I, I've spoken to so many women of the generation before me and in recent weeks who are just so discouraged to hear, you know, that we're still fighting the same fight. But but the point is, you know, we're not we're not gonna give up and it's very fundamental to me that as as women and as full members of this society, you know, we have control over our bodies. We are complex, we're intelligent, we can understand the decisions before us, you know, we are the best ones to make determinations about what's going to happen with our bodies and our babies, you know, and I just think we are the ones that have to to live with everything that happens, you know, whether that's um, a really tragic decision, whether it's a decision to proceed and, and care for, you know, children that may have challenges, whatever that is, whatever your family situation is, you know, you're going to be the one that has that. And so it, just like every other decision in life, I mean, you're really in the best position to know, can your family do that? Can you do that? You know, can this, can you, can this child do that? Um, and, and the idea that, 
anyone else would be involved in that just seems fundamentally strange to me. I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's not like anyone would make those decisions without the utmost degree of care and, and empathy and struggle, you know, and, and I think the policy that we would control women's bodies sort of implies otherwise. It implies that, you know, we might be less than thoughtful about it. And and that I think is just, um, it's not respectful of, of women and their complexity. So that's, that's kind of how I approach it, you know, and I, I think that we've seen so much progress on women's equality and, you know, I'm so proud to serve as like a young female senator in our state. But at moments like this, you know, it just sort of demonstrates why we need young people moving back and we need their voices in the legislature and we need them running because if you're not there, someone else is going to be there and they may not hold the same views that you do. They may not say these things um, and they may not fight for them. And so, you know, you can't leave it up to somebody else. You really, if you if you think it's important, you know, you need to do it. Uh, you, again, even if it's not for years and years, but it's your contribution, and I think it's important. I I totally agree. And what what opportunities and challenges are you sort of seeing in the legislature on these issues that that you think people need to be aware of? Well, it's it's become very partisan, and that's really unfortunate. And in in particular in New Hampshire that stands out because they have a long history of, of reproductive rights actually being a very bipartisan issue. Mm. And unfortunately it reflects a bunch of other issues um, that have become increasingly partisan. And I I know as a legislator participating this year, I mean, New Hampshire's always been a place for bipartisan work where you can make deals across the aisle, people know each other. There's so many legislators. I don't know if you guys would know this, but we have 413 members of our House of Representatives. So there's just, there's a lot of people involved in these decisions. And, you know, they're part of communities together and they might be on other sides of the aisle, but they're, they should be able to talk. And so it's too bad to see even something like this become partisan, which of course it has been on the national stage for a long time. But, but again, that had, not been the case in New Hampshire. And so advocates that um, I've worked with, at least on on the reproductive rights issue, have said there have been legislators who traditionally, you know, have been strong on this that have sort of changed how they've been voting. And, um, you know, I think we've all seen nationally how, how partisanship has become more polarizing. And I'm sure that's another podcast for another day, but it's, you know, in my mind, it's related to to media coverage. It's related to fundraising. It's related to you know sort of outside influences getting involved in state politics. So it's complex, but but unfortunate in my mind. Yeah, and I guess I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear your take. So uh, I think like like many politically active people, I've done uh, you know volunteer work on campaigns for president in New Hampshire and. There are some challenges with having New Hampshire always be uh, first or mm. the first primary, but I also um, I also know how engaged and how bipartisan it can be. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm curious as to whether you think this is it's your state's just getting pulled along and polarized like the rest of the country, and what if anything can be done about it? You know, it it is easier in a smaller state to to try to push back 
because because people do have those relationships and expectations. But but are you optimistic or are you pessimistic about sort of the future of partisanship in 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 your state? Yeah. It's a great question, and every, everything you just made reference to is so true. I mean, I I have had so many people come to our state and comment on how engaged, you know, our, our citizenry is in this process, and, and we're really proud of that. I think it's just part of a New Hampshire tradition, and, and you know, you probably have heard the jokes a thousand times, everybody expects to meet every presidential candidate, and it's kind of the truth, and that just doesn't happen in other places, so we're lucky for that. It's, it's hard to answer on the wake of the 2020 elections, because just as someone who was actively involved in being campaigns last fall here, I mean, not being able to knock on doors it was huge and it's a very expected part of politics here, which might not be the case everywhere. And, you know, people aren't going to engage on the phone or via a voicemail or an email or, or even a social media post, you know, that it's just not the same as having an in-person conversation. And, and to your point, I think those in-person conversations are really, they're so important to breaking down what might be, high level and, and unnuanced, you know, partisan communication, I think it's important to kind of dig into the details of issues to create understanding. And that that's where common ground is, you know, common ground doesn't exist when one party has three bullet points, and the other party has three bullet points, you know, common ground exists when you spend <laughs> 20 minutes talking about something, you know, and you kind of understand that the other person is coming from a place of reason. And so I don't know, you know, I, I hope we can return to those more traditional ways of campaigning in 2022. And I hope that without the pandemic as a concern, you know, we will see more of a return to that. But it but it was a huge influence, I think, in, in how 2020 turned out here. So. And I, uh, I, I, I'll just give you briefly my story is you know i'm a, I'm a california kid so i'm there in yeah. the winter yeah. hike, going through the yeah. snow <laughs> for al gore and i knocked on somebody's door and i was pitching al gore and and they asked me a question some of obs- pretty obscure question about taxes and i didn't know the answer and their response was well have him call me and i'm like the vice president <laughs> and uh, and uh and they were like yeah he should call me and answer the question and I thought, wow, that is a level of engagement that's just wholly different than you see anywhere else. That's a great story. <laughs> uh, so I want to talk, I mean, one another thing you've been vocal on and sort of ties into this, these, these very issues we're talking about is redistricting that's going on, mm. both the challenges with the timing and then the potential partisan nature of it. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in your state and with every uh, house seat being critical and then in the state legislatures, what's, how, how do you think it's going to play out in uh, New Hampshire? Yeah, it's, it's been an interesting debate for sure. So I was prime sponsor of three bills related to redistricting and then a colleague of mine had a fourth and together they basically focused on having an independent redistricting commission, which traditionally was bipartisan, a bipartisan issue. And then in lieu of that, if that didn't actually happen or potentially in addition, 
you know, making sure that any meetings that were held were available to the public, that any resources used were available to both parties, because there had been a little history of that not being the case, and that any maps that were proposed were promptly made available to the public for review, um, because unfortunately there too, there had been some history of, of the maps not being available for review prior to being adopted. So the debate was interesting. I mean, to me, following you know, what happened with our election last year, these false allegations of fraud, you know, the insurrection on January 6th, it was our job, every single one of us, regardless of party, to reaffirm what this democracy was and the fact that we were going to adhere to it, you know, in its most pure form, basically. And I think we each we each bore a responsibility to try to do that in, in every way that we could. And so independent redistricting for me is just an important piece of that. And it was, I guess, unfortunate just to see that it did break down along partisan lines. And so what we heard from our colleagues across the aisle was that, you know, this these bills kind of implied that that process wouldn't be fair, which... <laughs> You know, I, I wasn't here in 2010. I didn't see the process, but those who were here, you know, couldn't, they certainly couldn't say that they thought it was conducted in an extensive and open public manner. So, you know, I think history kind of supports the idea that there do need to be some controls around it. And in theory, they should be no issue and, and not partisan because it's just the way we should be doing it. But, but given that the argument from the other side was sort of to say, this imputed bad motives to them and, and sort of acted like they were going to act in bad faith. They, they were going to vote against it. And so, you know, it, it's too bad. And I remain hopeful. We'll still be pushing this for the next decade, but obviously it's a hugely fundamental part of what we'll get done over the next 10 years. And, and so it's just, it's really too bad. We couldn't make a difference on it this time around. How do you, how do you stay motivated? I mean, obviously you have a lot going on. Uh, you have a little one and a new, and another one on the way you have a, a, a important, difficult full-time job. How do you stay motivated to keep engaging in a political process that is increasingly frustrating and not particularly fact-based? Yeah. <laughs> I like the eloquent way you stated that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I'm sure you have your answer for this question too, right? But it's it's important. And I put my hand up to do this. And so people are looking to you to to represent them and do a good job and fight as hard as you can. And and so you need to do that, you know. But, yeah, there's a lot of challenges, I think, to managing having a young family and being an elected official and all that. No small part of it is my amazing wife <laughs> is, you know, just a huge part of all of this and and would be a huge part of anybody, I think, um, who's there in elected office being able to do their job. But but at the end of the day, you know, you have to care that much. It's not, you know, running for office is is awesome. I have loved it. I would encourage everybody to do it. But you have to pick something that's going to really light your fire because, you do, you know, at 9 p.m., you're logging off of a Zoom, you might still have an op-ed to edit, <laughs> you know, you miss bedtime, and that's not going to be every night, but it is going to happen, and 
and you just need to kind of know in your heart that it's important for you to be there and it's important for you to be doing it. And if, if you're not there, you don't know who will do it. And that's not to say no one will, but you know, it, it's all of our jobs. And so if it's my job right now, then I need to do it, you know, and uh, I signed up to do it. And so it's a pleasure to, to do it on days where you feel like people are listening and, and, you know, you get those emails that just say, thank you for representing me. Like, I'm so proud to have you. My state center, it's really gratifying to know that you're making people feel like they have someone that cares about them and they're, and they're doing something on their behalf because everybody needs that little bit of help. You know, it's my hope that that can just make someone feel a little better as they go through their day. Well, I'm glad you're getting those emails because I know you're not getting uh, sleep. <laughs> so, uh, so you, uh, it's it's at least you at least you have that encouragement at all hours as you try to try to manage all these th- different things. I want to ask one last question, which is about your interest in increasing affordable housing and workforce housing, and you know, I think many of us are concerned about these issues. And again, I think you know, a majority of Americans or plurality of Americans live in sort of these smaller cities. And so uh, solutions that can work in, in your communities can work across the country. What do you see as a, as some policies that we should be considering to create housing for the next generation? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. And, um, and definitely the one I have spent the most time on <laughs> as a public policy person It's, you know, in my mind, what we see is that businesses are are locating where there is talent and where there are employees. And it's not the same economy it was, you know, in the 80s where you need to provide tax breaks and a race to the bottom. You know, I mean, just look at where Amazon or GE ended up locating. I mean, they're going to urban centers where there are young people and so that kind of aligns in a lovely way with good housing policy I mean what you want for housing is is dense walkable housing and that's what's attractive to you know our generation and so that's the most sustainable it's the most inexpensive or efficient to serve from a municipal perspective it's the most supportive of creating not just physical but social community and so thinking about how either at a local level which is most often where you can impact it the most but even at a state level you know how you can even require incentivize you know sort of dense mixed-use areas in places that make sense for your particular location I think is just is just fundamental to moving the needle on it and so I've done that, for example, by running <laughs> it was essentially a two-year process when I was first a city councilor to do zoning changes in, in um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And then in my next two years, I was basically trying to understand whether we could see residential zoning on the converted Air Force Base that's nearby Pease. And I was successful in the first venture. And the second one, you know, we looked into it, we understood there were regulatory changes that involved federal regulations that would probably take five or six years to fix. But, you know, 
<laughs> we're talking about long-term future here. And so that continues to be an interest of mine to sort of see how that, the use of that Air Force Base will evolve. But, you know, in some ways it is as simple as looking around and figuring out where it makes sense and how can we change the regulations to make that happen. Um, and you won't always build your way to affordability with housing, but in many, many cases, building additional housing supply is something that will affect people of many income brackets, whether that's transitioning out of homelessness into temporary housing, whether that's Section 8 vouchers, whether that's a family, you know, trying to afford their next home or or buy a starter home. Increasing housing stock can affect all of those different income ranges, and so it's, it's part of the solution for a lot of different parts of our housing solution. Yeah, and I think, and you've talked about how it, what it does to make make a community more vibrant, right? And so if you can figure out housing, you can figure out so many of these other pieces to make to make our communities attractive and, and vibrant places for people to be. I, I, I just right. want to take a second and thank you for your service. I mean, I think you are balancing a lot in a critical state to many of us. I think we are all, we all need to pay attention to New Hampshire politics more than once every four years. And, uh, having you there (laughs) is, 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 is a, is a a critical piece and having you as a new member of the new deal. is exciting. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been really fun to talk to you. And I hope for anybody who gets to listen that you'll get excited to run for office because, it's just, uh, as I'm sure you can attest to, Ryan, you know, it's a unique experience, but it's it's the best, and um, you'll figure it out <laughs> and enjoy it. <laughs> so. Yes, figure it out and survive some days and thrive others, and uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, and I look forward to seeing you once we get back to a little bit more normalcy uh, in person at the next New Deal uh, conference. Yeah, I look forward to it, Ryan. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.